The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of our History of Gear series, we talk with Bruce Johnson about the hotbeds of gear around the country and explore the often overlooked history of Arcata California gear companies, including Moonstone, Kokatat, and Downhome. Welcome back, everyone. This is Chase, and joining me again for another History of Gear series is Bruce Johnson. Thanks for joining me again, Bruce. Good to see you. Well, you are sure welcome. I put together a kind of different presentation today. Well, I'm excited about it. We've, we've largely focused on brands. Uh, last, last time we, we met, we, we kind of branched off and started talking about the evolution of, of products. And I'm really excited about the topic today because it's more, um, well, I'll, I'll let you introduce what the, what the topic is for today. Yeah, you know, in the history of gear, after many years of collecting material on companies and putting out some stories about the companies, this pattern kind of emerged and I began to wonder, oh, what, why, why is it that these early gear pioneers of the 50s and 60s and 70s, they all seem to be like clustered in just a few geographic areas. Why not all over the place? And those areas, after a while, they were really easy to put a finger on. And they were basically five or six. There was the Boulder, Denver area of Colorado. There was the Seattle area. There was the San Francisco Bay area. There was uh, the uh, LA area. And then a little tiny one, sort of an anomaly, uh, Arcata, California, the small college town way up near the Oregon border on the California coast. So why was that? And after a while more, I started to wonder, well, huh, it doesn't seem like the whole east of the Mississippi had that kind of thing going on. What was that about? So <clears throat> that's kind of what my talk today is going to be about. And then I'll focus in on, on something that's kind of more manageable, which is just the Arcata companies, because boy, the, uh, the big areas had so much going on and so many companies that became really big with really complicated stories that I am not going to attempt that. Well, I, I think what you mentioned before we started recording was pretty interesting, um, how a lot of your research and your study is based off of um, you know, a lot of people who reach out to you and it's people from these regions of the country who have reached out and, and the East coast has largely been silent. Um, and that doesn't mean that there isn't a hotbed over there. It's just that maybe we haven't found it. Um, 
you know, I've kind of encountered the same thing with, with Utah as I've been trying to look back in the history of Utah brands. There's like companies here and there, but it hasn't been documented properly. And so maybe there's a hotbed there that happened around the same time, but the research hasn't been done. So um, I think by, by all means, this isn't like a comprehensive list of these, these are the hotbeds and this is everything that was going on. Right. Um, there could be a lot more out there um, that we just don't know about. That's this history thing. Just, you know, there's, there's more to, more to learn, more to study. There's, there's more work to be done. I had also had the uh, thought that right now, 2020, your program there at Utah State is another hotbed. It's a hotbed in that same sense that we'll be talking about here today, where people are in direct contact with one another physically and able to share actual, their actual prototypes easily back and forth, physical uh, physically share them, feel them, touch them. So we'll go back and, and talk a little bit about uh, the East Coast for a moment because it has been such a, such a hole. Um, so I'll do a little screen share here with uh, my website. Insofar as the companies on the East Coast or actually east of the Mississippi River, the one that has stood out in my own research is EMS, Eastern Mountain Sports. To me, it's become very much like the REI of the East Coast. Uh, they're quite large and quite current. They actually were founded in 1967. And material off their own website, they were founded by, quote unquote, two rock climbers. So they had authentic roots, just like Jerry and Holly Bar did, and like some of the companies in the other hotbeds like Seattle and Bay Area, people who actually were climbers. But unlike those companies back there, they didn't seem to have, in, at least in what I've learned gradually over the years in my project, they don't seem to have been big creators of innovations of gear. And you don't find, for instance, them being brought forward as among the 12 greatest gear pioneers when uh, the industry honored those 12 pioneers back in 1992, uh, the, the event we talked about in uh, one of the previous podcasts. We don't find any of those East Coast companies there were East Coast companies. It wasn't just EMS. There was uh, Camp and Trails. There was a company uh, called Akers, A-K-E-R-S. Maybe it was pronounced Akers because it was probably Norwegian uh, that sold cross-country ski equipment. Uh, it's where I got my first cross-country ski equipment because they weren't even available anywhere in the Northwest at the time, uh, late 60s. And that company, incidentally, is still alive and well. Um, but apparently, the, the pioneers, this is one thing I've noticed, the potential pioneers of the East Coast, they were attracted to the mountains of the West. And I can give you some examples. 
Jack Stevenson of Warm Light was born in New Jersey. And he grew up there and went to school there and uh, went to college there as an engineer. And then moved out to Southern California. Ditto for Bob Swanson, the uh, co-founder of Sierra Designs. He was a native of Pennsylvania, but wound up in the Bay Area and got together with a, a co-worker from Trailwise and formed Sierra Designs. And there are other examples of that. I have one more, I guess, to mention. Um, oh, Jerry Cunningham, uh, who grew up in upstate New York and developed his first few products there and had a catalog right after he got back from World War II. Um, but then swiftly realized his dream to live in the mountains and he moved out to Colorado. So perhaps that's part of why East Coast companies didn't figure in so much. So I'm gonna switch over to a discussion of Arcata California companies. As I said, because it's uh, such a small scene there compared to the Bay Area, and one that I can, uh, it's more manageable to try to talk about a little bit. Moonstone Mountaineering was the company to me that is most noteworthy because it became relatively big and well-known and tried like crazy to stay in existence up into the 2000s and then finally got absorbed and vanished from the light of day. Um, it went through perhaps six uh, various ownerships after the original people, which are shown here in this picture. This is, well, this is Fred Williams and this is his partner at the time, they lived in a little trailer on Moonstone Beach, right near Arcata, and that was their workshop. And that's their dog. This is a Gore-Tex shelled with a down collar, very, very beautifully made and conceptualized bag. Back in about 1976, 77, so this company began to create some really good products. Can you give, give an the, idea of what, what this little town was? Because like you said, it, it isn't one of the major hubs that you traditionally think of when, you know, in this conversation of the, the hubs of outdoor gear, Boulder, Denver, Seattle, um, you know, LA. Um, this is a really small college town. Can, can you give an well, idea of kind of what, yeah. what that area is like? Well, part of it is I think that it's a college town and it has that kind of energy. Young people, seekers of knowledge and uh, has a reputation for being a liberal uh, college, uh, which also seems to be part of that kind of spark. Um, when I say hotbed, I, I really visualize these various hotspots as it's like lightning struck. Lightning struck Arcata or struck Seattle and, and some pioneering force 
perhaps a, a definite person started a company and then there were like little brush fires around the area and other, other little companies, other little people sprung up and began to uh, uh, create gear. Um, Seems like you can trace back a lot of that, that initial strike to a lot of these regions, right? To a, a, a person or a company, right? And certainly Boulder, Denver, Jerry, right? And the whole mm-hmm. bars. That's lightning striking twice, right? Um, you know, for Seattle, it's probably REI, right? Starting in the, th- in the 30s. I would think. Yeah, some or, could say that it, uh, the strongest case, I think, would be for REI, although they didn't make their own gear for, for right. decades. Yeah, yeah, they that's true. They were importers. Um, but, uh, yeah, certainly REI and a whole lot spawned out of that. And Eddie Bauer, of course, was there. And were perhaps innovators. They certainly had the claim to the first down jacket, the Skyliner jacket back in the uh, – late thirties and we're creating down sleeping bags and so forth. Um, right up there, um, in the same time frame as Alice Holly bar, although perhaps not as innovative. So you had that idea of once the lightning hits, there tend to be little brush fires mm-hmm. coming up nearby. So that's what happened in Little Arcata, and it's it's difficult to say who was the first, but this paddling company named Kokotat was certainly one of the very first there in Arcata, 1971, and they're still there, and they're still big, and they have over 300 employees, and they market to a group of paddlers. I'm not a paddler, but um, they're still there. And in that tiny community at the time, everybody really kind of knew everybody. So there was a um, company or group called the Arcata Transit Authority. And out of there sprung up Moonstone and a brand called Blue Puma and uh, another uh, important company named Down Home. So I'll talk a little bit about some of those and just illustrate how these companies tried to, tried to make successes, had very innovative ideas, and some were never big and faded away. Others, like Moonstone, tried valiantly for many years and achieved some success. So uh, I wanted to talk about Moonstone and its sleeping bags because that was like their major uh, contribution to the history of gear. So if we scroll down just a little bit, examples of Moonstone sleeping bag innovation, you take a look at warm light 10 years earlier had been coming out with its own radical sleeping bag designs where they add a whole different hood design. They had moved into having vapor barrier liners. They had um, cut away the whole bottom of the sleeping bag and said, why, why in the world do you want to sleep on down? It's worthless down there and had integral sleeping pads, not down. And so uh, the way it had been set and Moonstone had its own versions of that that they really worked on and developed and improved on some of the Stevenson things, in my opinion. They took a look at sleeping bag hoods. Sleeping bag hoods back then 
and even now tend to be these affairs on the top of the sleeping bag that are just there. And when you try to cinch them down during really cold weather, a lot of people feel very claustrophobic and have a difficult time closing it up as tightly as uh, might uh, be best for warmth because they feel so claustrophobic. And of course, side sleepers, the, the, the hood design is like you're breathing into your, into your hood, into your uh, interior of your bag and making it uh, hoard moisture, which you don't want in really cold conditions. So Moonstone kind of rethought that and came up with the idea of, oh, hoods you could actually just take off. You could actually just wear them and roll around with them at night. I had one of these bags, the Modulus, the blue one here, that had a down top and zippers on the side and your pad was on the bottom and you'd sleep on it and you couldn't roll off it in the middle of the night. So you had these two big innovations, the hood that was separate and the integral pad. Got a little story to tell here behind me today. You have this thing, which is a sleeping bag by Moonstone. It's a little hard to pull it close enough to see well, but a um, little story on this thing. This is the top off of a modulus sleeping bag. That's what they named this. I was contacted by a woman who saw my website on uh, Moonstone. This was maybe eight years ago. And she said, what kind of a bag is this thing? What is this? What is this? When I zip it together, it would only fit a large cigar. It's way too skinny. What is this? Is, is this a child's bag? What am I supposed to do with this thing? I want to sell it. And I was able to uh, point out to her that actually it was just the top of a modulus and the bottom was missing. And she therefore had something that really was missing a key part so she really couldn't sell it as a sleeping bag so she basically gave it to me and it's a very high quality piece beautiful silky down materials completely downproof fabric high quality fabric great baffling wonderful down probably at least 700 fill i have some thoughts i could make it into a quilt and i might do that uh in that small community there there was a point when a number of these small startup companies were actually in the same building and they could just walk back and forth to, to each other's places and look at the products and, and uh, hang out over the coffee machine and talk about stuff, uh, which I believe was how hotspots worked back in the early days before the internet and before long distance phone lines and social media. That's how the hotbeds really shared and, and really uh, got, their, got their ideas uh, from. Well, that was, that's a really interesting point that you brought up before we started recording. But I mean, the reason that these hotbeds um, started where they were was really, yeah, you couldn't really communicate with people across the country. You, you, everything was so regional at that time. So yeah, you had REI pop up on one side of the country and EMS pop up on the other, serving those two sides of the country. And, you know, each each region kind of had someone, you know, warm light that was doing sleeping bags um, in Colorado. And then 
um, you know, people doing that in, in California. And it's, it was really, like you said, we're just limited on, on the ability to communicate and, and reach people um, outside of just our own little regions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a really fun story from that time in the LA area. Um, there are several such stories, but one that really sticks in my mind today, Jack Stevenson was a well-known guy because he was so creative and had tents and sleeping bags like none other. Probably the very first true hip carry pack, the uh, so-called Jack pack. Um, So one day, Dick Kelty comes wandering over from however many miles away, not many, and said, oh, hey, I want to see that pack of yours. And he hoists on one of uh, Stevenson's hip carry packs and they load it up with some weight and Dick Kelty takes off and walks the neighborhood for a while, comes back, says, wow, your pack is like way more comfortable than my pack. That kind of thing you see <clears throat> is hard to duplicate in today's world. In your own case there at Utah State, I've noticed that you've got companies chomping at the bit really to come and talk to your students. And that's that same kind of process that I think really helps generate great gear. Right. Well, and in our case, we're just, we're just hoping, uh, you know, lightning strikes in, in Logan, right? Cause it, like, like you said, it really only takes one company that does something truly innovative. And then it seems like that just attracts, you know, pe- creative people attract creative people. Um, and, and there's some gravity that's created that way. So yeah, that's definitely something that we hope to be able to do at some point. Um, like you said, by bringing so many creative designers, aspiring designers, and then um, providing them an opportunity to interact with people in the industry. And, and hopefully through watching some of these things, people can, can watch and, and see, oh, our Arcada, you know, we, we could do that where, where we live, right? Um, and, you know, I've got a great idea. I could start something here. Like Arcada is a lot smaller than, than where I live or, you know, I, whatever it is, like, um, there, especially now where, where people can reach customers, um, you know, outside of just their direct town or city or region, like through the internet, um, there's no reason you, you can't start something and, and create a hotbed, you know, in outside of these traditional areas. Yeah. Yeah. I think nowadays you can combine the best of the old with the, the, abilities to communication all over the world that is available now so easily through the internet and other platforms like that. Uh, so could be a wonderful period uh, coming up. And that would be an interesting future episode. It's not necessarily history, but it'd be interesting to kind of look at the current state of the industry and, and see, well, what are the, the next hotbeds? You know, where, where is the innovation happening in, um, around the country? and um, and and it is, I think, more dispersed um, than it has been in the past. Like there's starting to be more of that spread across, um, you know, because, you know, you certainly have like Bozeman that's really taken off and Jackson Hole is, you know, becoming its own region. I mean, there's there's pockets all over the country now that that are really gaining momentum outside of these traditional regions that we think about. Um, I have noticed that, Chase. I really have. Uh, I'd uh, put a pin on basically the whole ultralight movement, mm-hmm. uh, lots and lots of little 
little companies, these like old fashioned companies coming up out of somebody's garage. Um, love to see that. And then you've got companies that are better established. Some, some of them like uh, the ones you've mentioned coming to visit you there at Utah state. So it's wonderful stuff. I'm really glad to, to hear it. Let's switch to our last screen, which would be down home. Down home was there in Arcata started a year or two later than Moonstone. Um, the, the main guy there at Down Home, it was just a couple, really, uh, a man and a wife. Uh, he'd actually been like the head designer at Blue Puma there. So, again, that energy just sharing right there in that little town, probably even in the same building where they all rented space. Well, this, this fellow took sleeping bag design even further, even more deeply innovative, deeply controversial, I suppose, in some circles. Uh, so this is my son wearing Chuck Kennedy. That's his name. Chuck Kennedy's version of the de detachable hood. This hood design of his was way more advanced than Moonstone's version. Uh, it had so many different down compartments, uh, carefully designed its Gore-Tex. It's uh, designed to have equal loft of the sleeping bag itself. That's why it looks so large because it has the same kind of loft. So if you had a winter bag, it might have eight inches of loft in the hood. And as we know, the, the head is the, the body's greatest heat loss source. So Chuck Kennedy was really not afraid to go there. Where, where did um, the founders of both Moonstone and Down Home, where did they gain their technical skills to design? Well, unlike with um, a lot of the other companies where like Jack Stevenson or Jerry Cunningham, I've had actual physical interviews. Uh, and I found, oh, their mothers <laughs> taught them how to sew. I don't know that about these founders of uh, Moonstone, the uh, woman named Nikki who you saw there in, at the sewing machine in the little house trailer. I don't know. But uh, clearly, uh, they got really good at what they were doing. I've had a little bit of contact with the founder of uh, Moonstone, but that's an unexplored area. So the down-home company was really majorly rethinking sleeping bags. And I was able to get my hands on two of their bags uh, on a loan basis from um, Wayne Gregory and his wife, um, Susie, who had down-home bags and just sent them to me so that I could photograph and take a look at their design and get inside and and just really feel them out. They had a completely redesigned shoulder section with some complicated zippering system that was not only comfortable, but really kept the heat in around the shoulder area without having to resort to down collars. But down in them was fanatical in terms of its quality. Uh, I've heard stories that Chuck Kennedy would get a, bag, a big bag of down from the supplier put it out on a big clean floor and pick through and get rid of all the feather shafts before he put it in the bags. 
They had a double zipper system instead of the standard draft flap. Uh, lots of lots of ideas built into these wonderful bags. But the company never became big. It was always just Chuck Kennedy and his wife. And after a while in the early 80s, they moved themselves up to a little tiny rural place in uh, um, near the Oregon coast and still made bags for many more years and finally kind of faded out, apparently just decided to stop doing sleeping bags in the uh, time frame of about 1993. So they're an example of a great innovative company that had a certain impact, but it never grew large. And that's really to be counterpoised against Moonstone Mountaineering, which got noticed by Hap Klopp, uh, which who is uh, some would say like the main guy behind North Face in control of North Face. His group uh, snapped it up, snapped up Moonstone, and that didn't work so well. And then uh, it got snapped up by a uh, mostly clothing company, Esprit, uh, which had some other big names behind it, Doug Tompkins and his wife. Some may know that name. Um, Tompkins was also involved in the early days of North Face. And then it went on, and then it went on, Moonstone's ownership, and uh, a company that had Jerry for a while, uh, Amorex, uh, also had, <laughs> had Moonstone. And then after that, it, it was uh, um, Pacific Trail, which was a, uh, a company from the old days, 1945 founding, I believe. Um, and that's how I finally found this top I'm wearing. <laughs> kind of like the, one of the last products ever of Moonstone. I found it in a, a mall quite unexpectedly. A mall just selling a variety of brands of outdoor clothing, closeouts. It had Pacific Trail stuff and it had a little bit of Moonstone. I snapped up this thing. It was the last dying breath of Moonstone. Because well, after that, Columbia Sportswear yeah. bought it up and has never used the brand. It's interesting for anybody thinking of getting into the, the biz, all these different ways it can turn out and why. No, I think that's great. What do you think the, I guess, the key lessons from this region would be? I think you shared a few of them, but I guess what, what would be the key takeaways you think from, from these brands? I, I, I really like that we talk about the small brands. I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's definitely easier to talk about the ones that are still around. There's a little more information out there. Um, not as much digging that has to be done. Um, but it just seems like there's some great lessons to be learned from, from these, these companies and from these regions. Um, and just knowing that a small college town in, in California became a hotbed. Um, uh, what thoughts do you have on that? My thought is that the fire, the, the passion to create was um, a lot easier in many ways back then. Uh, a dreamer like Chuck Kennedy, for instance, uh, could just go his own way and go as far as, as he wanted to go without having to uh, deal with an incredible big bureaucracy at a major company. Same thing with Jack Stevenson. Same thing with Jerry Cunningham. Same thing with Roy and Alice Hollybar. 
And many of those companies, when they got uh, absorbed or sold to big corporations, went under because the big um, corporate environment uh, had some definite uh, negatives about it. And you saw it in some of these companies we've talked about. Escape was kind of a theme of some of these companies. Um, you mentioned, you actually mentioned in your, um, on your website, you know, very similar to Rivendell where it's escaping to the Tetons, escaping to the, the Misty Mountains, right? And, um, you know, creating your kind of your own world, your own environment um, and making gear, kind of escaping corporate America a little bit. I don't know if that was so intentional with, with these companies. But it seems like that's a theme with a lot of these brands is escape. The dream of Jerry Cunningham that got him uh, uh, kicked out of college, more or less. Uh, he always had this dream. He was going to live in the mountains and make gear. And that's how he was going to like make his living. And his college education was supposed to uh, prepare him for that. And his advisor said, that's a really stupid idea and criticized him, and Jerry dropped out <laughs> of college um, and created his own dream, uh, follow your dream. Um, so I think that a number of these early pioneers uh, did that in their various ways um, and with varying degrees of success. So there's many lessons to be learned. Uh, Holly Barr, um, was perhaps more savvy than many, especially once it got uh, under the uh, uh, ownership of uh, Jim Cack, who was a skilled business person and a skilled uh, motivator of staff, of a larger staff. Um, so <clears throat> many lessons to be learned. And uh, since my focus is on the early days and the pioneers, I, I have not tried to understand and research what goes on in the big companies of the modern era when it comes to innovations and how that all gets dealt with. But there's stories there for somebody. Right. No, absolutely. Um, I, I was going to mention, we've got some catalogs from, um, from Moonstone in our archive as well. If, if people want to check those out, we have a couple down home, catalogs as well so great great resource I'm, I'm glad that we've at least preserved some of that that history and have some of that that paper um that will exist for a long time in addition to the stories that you have documented and that and the overall history here on the website yeah thanks uh i'm glad you have a couple uh down home catalogs it's great to have it so you know whenever it's safe for people to travel again and and access the collection in person it's it's there to do that but at least you can see the covers those have been scanned well, Bruce, this has been, it's been fun to learn about some of these smaller brands and about this region. This wasn't on my radar at all, uh, but it's, it's interesting to, to dig in and, and understand this region and, and what they've, you know, they were able to, to build there. Um, so again, appreciate you taking so much time and, and all the research that you put into this. And, and it's interesting to hear from, from your perspective, there's, there's more digging into these brands that could be done. So there's still more stories there, potentially, maybe an opportunity. Yeah. So. Well, again, thanks for taking time, Bruce. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. Subscribe and listen for more outdoor stories and content wherever podcasts are found on highlandermag.com 
and each Sunday at 4 p.m. on Aggie Radio, 92.3 FM in Cache Valley.